Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Rhea Milherker. I'm currently a radiation oncology resident in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I will be your host today. I'm excited to be working on another clinical concepts episode uh, dedicated for any students who are preparing for the step two exam uh, or perhaps gearing up for clinical rotations. Uh, The clinical concept series is not meant to exclude first and second year medical students by any means, but it is meant to advance our reviews up a level uh, and kind of cover topics in a more clinically oriented way, focusing on diagnostics and treatment. Um, If you guys find these episodes helpful, please let me know um, because as always, it's my goal to help you guys study as much as you can and to make knowledge as accessible for you guys in the medical field as possible. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about sepsis, um, which is a very important topic, especially at the level of step two and beyond as you're entering the clinical realm. I think if you spend just even one week on a medical floor or admitting patients in the emergency room, you are very quickly going to become very much acquainted with sepsis. If you haven't already seen a septic patient, uh, when you do, it's going to be quite obvious because these patients are sick and they are hard to miss. Um, Really septic patients can be very, very scary and they definitely require immediate resuscitation. And we are going to talk about what that entails in this episode. Now, keep in mind that some of the patients will respond to your resuscitation and if they do not respond, um, that may mean that they require ICU level care. And we are going to discuss all of what that means. So as always, I'd just like to start with a basic definition. What is sepsis? So the textbook definition of sepsis is a life-threatening condition which is characterized by organ dysfunction, and it basically results from a dysregulated host response to infection. Uh, If I have to explain it to a patient or to a family of patients, I would probably just say that sepsis um, is when a patient has a really, really intense response to infection and they become sick and drop their blood pressure. And as a result, they're risking all of their other organs. When we talk about sepsis, uh, there are some criteria that we should be familiar with. Um, And do you guys know what criteria we use to define sepsis? So traditionally, we used to use the SIRS criteria. SIRS is an acronym, S-I-R-S, that stands for Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. And any idea what the criteria are for SIRS, the SIRS criteria? So there's four real criteria that you need to know. Um, Tachycardia, tachypnea, a white blood count that's either very high or very low, so low is less than 4,000, high is greater than 12,000, or greater than 10% bands, and then a temperature that's either very high or very low, so either less than 36 degrees Celsius or greater than 38 degrees Celsius, which kind of defines hypothermia and hyperthermia. And so my mnemonic for the SIRS criteria is tacky, tacky, white, hot. So tachycardia, tachypnea, white blood cell count, either very high or very low, 
and hot. Um, and then you kind of have to remember that it's either hot or cold. Now, there's a newer criteria that has emerged from a more recent study. Does anybody know what I'm referencing here? So I'm thinking about the Q-SOFA score. It's another way that we can kind of characterize and define sepsis. So SOFA stands for Sequential Organ Failure Assessment Score. And so the Q-SOFA criteria are a different set of criteria than the SERS criteria, and these are a more newer and updated way of defining sepsis. And do you guys know what the Q-SOFA criteria are? So there's only three, and they're very different than the SERS criteria. So tachypnea, or respiratory rate over 22 breaths per minute, is the only overlapping uh, one. So we have tachypnea, altered mental status, and hypotension with a systolic blood pressure lower than 100. Okay, so remember, SERS criteria, tacky, tacky, white, hot, or cold in parentheses. And then QSOFA is tachypnea, altered mental status, and hypotension. And I think once you are, you know, in the clinical world and you're getting used to seeing septic patients, you'll see that the QSOFA criteria are kind of a better way of assessing whether or not a patient is truly septic um, because a lot of patients, for a variety of different reasons, um, whether they just ran a marathon or whether they um, are really scared about something, a lot of patients are going to meet SERS criteria, but not everyone is going to meet QSOFA criteria. And so I do think that QSOFA is kind of a better way to define whether a patient is really, really septic. Um, where I did my internship, we used to use QSOFA uh, to truly identify septic patients on rounds. Um, SERS was kind of considered more outdated, uh, kind of more used for billing purposes, actually, where I did my resident, my first year of um, medicine residency. So now that we've kind of defined the criteria that we use to define sepsis, we have to talk about some other terms as well. So we need to talk about sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. Sepsis is traditionally defined as having at least two out of the four SERS criteria plus a source of infection. Um, and you can use the QSOFA criteria instead just as well and a source of infection. And that's probably enough to say that the patient is septic. Now, what is severe sepsis? How is severe sepsis differentiated from just sepsis. So severe sepsis is defined as having sepsis plus end organ or tissue dysfunction. How can you tell if there's end organ damage? So you can certainly look at patients' labs. If they have an elevated creatinine, if they have elevated LFTs, Altered mental status actually is a sign of end organ damage. Um, in medicine, we often check their labs and we check their lactate because lactate is given off by cells in distress. Um, so an elevated lactate can be a bad sign that a patient is not getting enough blood flow, therefore not enough oxygen to the cell, and they're going into lactic acidosis. So lactate can also be a sign of end tissue dysfunction as well as a reflection of hypotension meaning that the patient is not getting enough blood to their tissues. So that's kind of what 
severe sepsis means. If they have elevated lactate, elevated creatinine, elevated liver enzymes, if they have altered mental status, and you can kind of see now how that ties into the QSOFA criteria. So we've kind of differentiated between sepsis and then severe sepsis. And then what is the definition of septic shock? I want you to kind of think about what shock in general means and then think about how that applies to sepsis and septic shock. So any kind of shock is a state of low blood pressure, right? So septic shock is severe sepsis plus hypotension that is refractory to fluid resuscitation. Okay, and this is really important. Remember that hypotension is a part of the QSOFA criteria. And part of the treatment for sepsis is to give fluids. So if a patient is hypotensive, but their blood pressure comes back up with some fluid, it's not septic shock. However, if they are not responsive to fluids, then the next step would be to escalate to giving intravenous vasopressors. And when patients are requiring pressors, these are usually given through a central line and this means they need ICU level of care because we do not give pressors through central lines on the ordinary floors, okay? So true septic shock means that they are hypotensive, not responding to fluids, they probably need pressors, and then they're going to the ICU to get pressors through a central line. Let me go ahead and present a case to you now and we'll kind of dis dissect it and get more into the details of sepsis. So let's say that a 65-year-old female who is quadriplegic due to a history of multiple sclerosis, she has a known stage 4 sacral decubitus ulcer, she has a neurogenic bladder status post-placement of a suprapubic catheter, and she lives in a nursing home. She is usually talkative and oriented times 3, but earlier today her caretakers noticed that she was growing more lethargic and had started to have decreased responsiveness. Her temperature was 101.2. And that's Fahrenheit, I should clarify. So in the emergency room, her vitals, her other vitals are um, heart rate of 110, her respiratory rate is 24, her blood pressure is 90 over 60, and her temperature is 101.8. Her pulse ox is 84% on room air. When you examine her, she's minimally arousable. She tells you her name, but she's very somnolent, not really answering any other question. She also has rigors. Her lungs are kind of difficult to auscultate, but she does have ronchi in both of her lung bases. Her belly is soft. It's not tender. There's no rigidity or rebound. Her extremities are kind of contracted, and they're non-edematous. She weighs 200 over 200 pounds, and you examined her in a room all alone, so you did not have time to turn her and look at her wounds. But you did go back and check her labs, and you see that her preliminary labs are showing a white count of 16 with 11% bands. What is her diagnosis? So I know that was kind of a long-winded question stem, but if you paid attention, um, you'll know that she had a fever, she was tachycardic, she was tachypnic, um, she had low oxygen level, 84%. She was also altered, she wasn't as arousable, um, and her blood pressure was low as well at 90 over 60. 
So I kind of gave you all the different criteria for sepsis, okay? I gave you both surge criteria as well as the Q-SOFA criteria with the tachypnea, the hypotension, and altered mental status. So she's septic, and I definitely suspect an infection because she has so many different sources of getting a potential infection. And whenever you see a patient with sepsis and suspect infection, there are two things that you need to do sort of simultaneously. So the first thing that you need to do when you see a patient with sepsis and suspect infection is achieve source control. You need to figure out where the infection is coming from and if it's something that can be removed from their body or needs to be, you know, surgically removed, you need to get that under control. The second thing you kind of need to do simultaneously is resuscitate the patient, right, with fluids and antibiotics. So between the two items, they should be happening in conjunction in your mind as you're addressing this patient, but resuscitation of the patient is always going to come first. So the key things that we think about with resuscitation are your ABCs, right? What are the ABCs? So airway, breathing, circulation. And if you look at this patient, you know, you've examined her, her airway seems patent. She is breathing on her own, but her SpO2 is 84%, which is low. So what do we do? We start supplemental oxygen. So that's her breathing. And then circulation. Her blood pressure, do you remember what we said her blood pressure was? 90 over 60, her blood pressure is low. And so that's kind of where we get into the key management for patients with sepsis. We said fluids and antibiotics. So fluids are going to hopefully help the blood pressure, right? Anytime you have a patient with low blood pressure, you usually won't go wrong by giving them some fluid. So in her immediate management, we need to give her boluses of fluid. Do you guys know a general formula for bolusing fluid in patients with sepsis? So the guidelines kind of say 30 cc's per kilogram should be given within the first three hours. Generally, we bolus fluid about a liter at a time, but as always, we need to consider the patient and we need to take into account what they can tolerate. So to give you some examples, if patients have heart failure or if they are on dialysis, we need to be really cautious with the fluid that we're giving them because we could also cause fluid overload and that can lead to respiratory failure if the fluid is not able to be pumped through the heart and it ends up backing up in their lungs. Now, that said, if they're septic from an infection and they're not perfusing their organs, they need fluid for their blood pressure and Worst case, if they're really, really hypotensive, you need to try giving fluids. And if, you know, if their lungs fill up with fluid, we can intubate and manage them in the meantime. So it's a very fine balance. And that's kind of where we get into the art of medicine. But what you should know is that septic patients need fluid and you should try to go up to 30 cc's per kilogram, bolusing one liter at a time. Now, what did we say happens if they do not respond to fluids? You know, you're giving her fluid, you give her one liter, two liter, three liters, four liters, and her blood pressure is just dropping. Now it's 75 over 40. What do you need to do? So at this point, you really need to be thinking about IV vasopressors. And 
We're not going to get into too much detail about what the IV vasopressors are and what you need to consider for them, but um, they usually all need to be given through a central line. You can give um, norepinephrine peripherally up to a certain dose, but then there is concern of causing um, constriction of the blood vessels in the skin and causing necrosis to the skin. So that's kind of why ideally all IV vasopressors are given through a central line. And when you place a central line, and um, you typically also want to place an arterial line, and this is just for blood pressure monitoring. Um, and then this means, you know, being on pressors automatically means they need ICU level of care. Um, and we're not going to get too much into the pressors again because it's kind of beyond the scope of this episode. But just know that if they're not responding to fluids, you have backup options, um, which is pressors, central arterial line, and ICU admission. And then the second part of resuscitation, um, part of your treatment, is going to be the antibiotics. Uh, And when we think about which antibiotics we give, we need to consider the source. Where do we think the infection is coming from? Because that's going to affect our antibiotic choice, right? So let's kind of go back towards our patient and think about her workup. Um, How would you go about identifying the source of infection? You really have two tools in your pocket, right? You can go off of your clinical history, and then you can obtain various tests, labs, and imaging as needed. So let's go through our sample case and think about what sources we suspect. So remember I said she has a stage 4 decubitus ulcer? What do you want to do about that? If you recall, I said that you know she was too heavy and you didn't have the time or resources to turn her when you saw her. Well, that's not acceptable. She has a stage 4 decubitus and we don't know the stage of that, or we don't know the status of that. So you need to you know get people to come in the room, help you turn her, and you need to examine the wound and see if it's infected. So what if it is infected? What if you look at the wound and it just smells so bad, it has purulent drainage, it has necrotic margins, it looks terrible? What is the next step? Any tests you need to order, anybody you need to consult? So I would definitely order a blood culture. You're probably going to do that in this patient anyway because she's septic and you should get a blood culture to see if she's bacteremic. Um, and then you need to consult your surgical, um, you know, your surgical residents, because if that ulcer is infected, then it requires surgical debridement. You know, you need to get source control. So if there is an infected stage four decubitus ulcer, you need the surgeons to come in and debreed that wound and achieve source control. And then other things you should always be thinking about are any sites that have lines or catheters. Think of IVs, central lines, and patients that have been hospitalized for a while, as well as, of course, any urinary catheters. And remember, our patient has a suprapubic urinary catheter. So what can you do about that? You can certainly get a urinalysis and get a reflex culture on that, and you should change her catheter in case that is the source of the infection. Um, More often than not, patients like this who are chronically in nursing homes with a chronic catheter, they're going to be what we call colonized. So they're always going to have some kind of bacteria growing in their urine, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're infected. Still, we can't rule that out and just say that she's probably colonized because she's coming in so sick. 
We need to, you know, treat everything like an infection until proven otherwise. So again, get the UA, change her catheter and, um, you know, follow up for reflex culture if the UA is growing bacteria. Any other sites of potential infection? So remember I said she's hypoxic and she sounds like she has ronchi and bilateral lung bases? You need to think about her lungs as a potential source of infection. Uh, she is quadriplegic. She is definitely an aspiration risk. So she could have easily aspirated her food or have some kind of facility-associated pneumonia. So what tests would you order to see if she has a lung infection? You can certainly get some imaging. You can get a chest x-ray or a CT scan to see if she has a consolidation representing pneumonia. And then you can also see if you can obtain a sputum culture. Sometimes it is hard to obtain a sputum culture if patients are not coughing things up, but you should always order one. You should always uh, encourage them to try to cough something up so that you can um, culture it and see if any bacteria grows. And then the last source, this might be a little bit tricky, but her abdomen, okay? You always, always, always want to examine the belly in a patient who is septic. Um, if they're infected, they can have signs of peritonitis potentially. They can have the rigidity, the rebound. Now, this patient is quadriplegic, and so I do not trust her abdominal exam because, you know, she may not have any sensation in her belly and she may not be able to, you know, have the normal response of peritonitis um, like, you know, a person who does have sensation. And so I would probably image her belly as well. Um, I would get both the CT of her chest as well as her abdomen to rule out an abdominal infection. So, so good. So those are some of the potential sources of her infection. And now I want to reiterate here that source control in sepsis is paramount. If a patient has any infection that requires surgical management, you need to urgently talk with surgery. So examples of this are ulcers that appear infected and need debridement, like that sacral wound I described. Uh, septic joints, if they need aspiration, you need to get that done immediately. Um, oftentimes you'll see patients who have some kind of infected hardware, like they had a knee replacement or a hip replacement, and now that's infected. They need That hardware needs to be removed, okay? Because if there's something that's a foreign body inside of a patient that's infected, you need to get it out. And if that means talking to surgery in the middle of the night, that means talking to surgery in the middle of the night. And then I kind of alluded to this earlier, but pretty obvious that infections need antibiotics. And this can be very challenging because um, it, it's hard to think about the antibiotics. It's hard to know what they cover. And then it's hard to figure out what you want to treat the patient with. So my approach to treating with antibiotics for sepsis is to think about the source that you are suspecting and then the common organisms that are involved. So for example, for skin, soft tissue, respiratory infections, what organisms do you usually think of? So gram positives, uh, including MRSA, right? So vancomycin, if a patient has a skin, soft tissue, respiratory infection, you generally won't go wrong by starting vancomycin initially. Now remember, that is kind of a broader antibiotic that we reserve for severe infections, but what I'm saying is sepsis is a severe infection. So until you have culture data, it's generally good to 
be broad. So you can start off with vancomycin. Now, what about for intra-abdominal urinary tract and, again, respiratory infections? What other kind of organisms should you be covering? Just generally. So gram-negatives, okay? Generally, intra-abdominal urinary tract, respiratory, you think about gram-negatives. And in that case, a good antibiotic might be something like a third-generation cephalosporin, like ceftriaxone, to cover those bugs. Intra-abdominal infections, you're also worried about another type of organism. Can you think of what that is? So anaerobes. You typically want to cover for anaerobes as well. Um, and for that, you would use something like flagell. And then respiratory, there's one other type of organism that can sometimes cause respiratory infections. So these are the atypical organisms, okay? And for atypical organisms like Legionella, Mycoplasma, if you're suspecting that's an option, you typically want to start something like azithromycin. And now in this patient who came from a facility, is there another bug that you're worried about that we haven't necessarily covered with the meds we just talked about? So remember, hospital-acquired pneumonia, facility-acquired pneumonia, you need to think about pseudomonas as well. So if you are worried about pseudomonas, you can go with a broader antibiotic such as piperacillin tazobactam, also known as zosin. Okay, so vancomycin and zosin is a combination that you'll see very commonly given in the emergency department. And we often knock on our emergency colleagues for starting broad antibiotics for no apparent reason. Um, but there is data that says that sepsis needs to be treated urgently. If they're meeting the criteria for sepsis, you should urgently treat with fluids and broad-spectrum antibiotics because this leads to improved overall survival of patients in this condition. So again, you should think very logically about your antibiotic approach. What is the source that you're suspecting? What are the most common organisms that are implicated in that particular source? But in these patients, you should not hesitate to go broad with your antibiotics because septic patients are very sick. They can quickly decompensate. And if they do, they become hypotensive and they're at risk of dying. So it's very serious and you really want to treat them well. Okay. And another point I do want to make is that in patients who are in nursing homes chronically and have had a lot of multidrug resistant infections, um, remember I said they can sometimes be colonizers? Well, sometimes they do have an infection, but their bacteria has just grown so much resistance because they've been treated again and again with antibiotics. And so in these cases, you might often consult your infectious disease colleagues, um, and they're actually started on big guns like ertapenem, um, just because, you know, we're kind of out of options because they have so much resistance. Now, it is ideal, you know, when you're treating sepsis, you want to treat with fluids and antibiotics. And usually before you start the antibiotics, you want to collect your microdata so that you have, you know, unbiased microdata. It's really ideal to get your UA blood cultures, sputum culture ahead of time, but it should not delay treatment. Okay, when you think about treating sepsis, think about fluids and antibiotics, and at the same time, you should be thinking about source control. So most conditions in the hospital are like this, but you kind of have to get used to figuring out what it is and doing the diagnostic process. 
but at the same time treating the patient and making sure that the patient is stable. So it's challenging to balance the two, but it has to be done simultaneously um, to be able to best take care of the patient. So thank you guys so much. Um, If you're still around, still listening to this episode, I really appreciate your support. Um, I hope that you guys found this episode helpful. My biggest takeaways from this episode, um, the criteria for sepsis, you should know both SERS criteria and QSOFA criteria, understanding that QSOFA is the more updated criteria. You should understand the definitions of sepsis versus severe sepsis versus septic shock. And then you need to understand that the key to management is resuscitation with fluids and antibiotics as well as source control. And these things need to be done at the same time. You want to treat um, at the same time that you were kind of trying to diagnose and trying to get to the bottom of what is causing their infection. So remember, fluids, we try to aim for around 30 cc's per kilogram in bolus fluids. And then we try to do broad-spectrum antibiotics. Vancomycin and Piptazo or Zosin is the brand name, is a very common regimen that's given with broad coverage. So thank you, thank you again so much for your time. If you found that episode helpful, I certainly hope that you'll give us some feedback, whether it's a subscription, a rating, or a review. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about this episode, you can log on to our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and um, post them under the link for this episode. And if you are interested in joining our team, uh, whether it's recording an episode or helping us out behind the scenes, please let us know through the contacts page at spoonfulofsugar.org and we'd be very excited to work with you. Thank you guys again so much. Um, Please remember that SOS does not just have to mean a cry for help. It can also stand for spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Mm